Most of you are familiar, I'm sure, with John Newton, who was that 18th century slave trader who was radically converted to Christ, became a leading pastor uh, in the Church of England. He's best known for his beloved hymn uh, called Amazing Grace. Um, Newton was a prolific hymn writer. He wrote close to 300 hymns. But a lesser known fact is that he wrote hundreds of pastoral letters in which he provided practical instruction and wise counsel and tender reproof and warm comfort to family members and friends. And his biographers concur that this was Newton's special gift. And he was highly regarded as, quote, the letter writer par excellence of the evangelical revival of his day. In fact, the late J.I. Packer said Newton, and I quote, was perhaps the greatest pastoral letter writer of all time. And so there's several collections of, of Newton's letters in print, and I recently acquired one of them after being intrigued by a footnote in another book that I was reading that read this, simply, see John Newton, quote, the advantages of remaining sin. And that struck me, just that title, The Advantages of Remaining Sin. And I had never thought about that before, and I thought to myself, is that really true? Are there advantages or benefits to the sin that remains in our lives as believers? And so I was curious to find out what Newton had to say about this fascinating notion. And so I tracked down the letter that he wrote to an English aristocrat who was apparently struggling with guilt and remorse over his indwelling sin. And I want to begin just by reading an excerpt from this letter just to kind of prime your mind and your heart as we consider this radical concept And it's not just radical, it's also potentially risky. It's a risky concept. And I think you'll discern why here in a moment. Now this is a a lot longer quote than I would normally use in a sermon, but I want to just read this for you. And again, it's just a portion of the letter, but again, just as this kind of laying the foundation for what I want to talk with you about this morning. This is what John Newton wrote. My Lord, my last two letters turned upon a mournful subject, the depravity of the heart, which impedes us when we would do good and pollutes our best intended services with evil. We have cause upon this account to go softly all our days, yet we need not sorrow as those who have no hope. If the evils we feel were not capable of being overruled for good, God would not permit them to remain in us. This we may infer from his hatred to sin and the love which he bears to his people. The unchangeableness of the Lord's love and the riches of his mercy are likewise more illustrated by the multiplied pardons he bestows upon his people than if they needed no forgiveness at all. Hereby, the Lord Jesus Christ is more endeared to the soul, all boasting is effectually excluded, and the glory of a full and free salvation is ascribed to him alone. And then he illustrates it well. He says, if a mariner, somebody out, a sailor, is surprised by a storm, 
And after one night spent in jeopardy and is presently brought safe into port, though he may rejoice in his deliverance, it will not affect him so sensibly as if after being tempest-tossed for a long season and experiencing a great number and a variety of hair-breath escapes, he at last gains the desired haven." The righteous are said to be scarcely saved, not with respect to the certainty of the event, but in respect of the great difficulties they are brought through. After a long experience of their own deceitful hearts, after repeated proofs of their weakness, willfulness, ingratitude, and insensibility, they find that none of these things can separate them from the love of Jesus. He becomes more and more precious to their souls. They love much because much has been forgiven them. They dare not, they will not ascribe anything to themselves, but are glad to acknowledge that they must have perished a thousand times over if Jesus had not been their savior, their shepherd, and their shield. When they were wandering, he brought them back. When fallen, he raised them. When wounded, he healed them. When fainting, he revived them. By him, out of weakness, they have been made strong. He has taught their hands to war and covered their heads in the day of battle. In a word, some of the clearest proofs they have have had of his excellence have been occasioned by the humiliating proofs they have had of their own vileness. They would not have known so much of him if they had not known so much of themselves. And then he says this, and this is so good. He says that we are so totally depraved is a truth which no one ever truly learned by being only taught it. Indeed, if we could receive and habitually maintain a right judgment of ourselves by what is plainly declared in Scripture, it would probably save us many a mournful hour. But experience is the Lord's school, and those who are taught by him usually learn that they have no wisdom by the mistakes they make and that they have no strength by the slips and fails they meet with. Every day draws forth some corruption, which before was little observed, or at least discovers it in a stronger light than before. Thus, by degrees, they are weaned from leaning to any supposed wisdom, power, or goodness in themselves. They feel the truth of our Lord's words, without me, you can do nothing. And then he concludes the letter by saying this, these are some of the advantages and good fruits which the Lord enables us to obtain from that bitter root indwelling sin. This letter was intended to provide comfort and hope for believers in the midst of our ongoing, often frustrating and discouraging fight with indwelling or remaining sin. Uh, If you're not familiar with that phrase, indwelling sin or remaining sin, let me Define it for you with the words of Paul Tripp in his book, Do You Believe? He said this, quote, sin still lives inside of us doing its ugly work. We are still susceptible to the seductive draw of temptation's call. We still have hearts that are prone to wander. We still have times when we want our own way more than we want God's way. We continue to have moments when we give way when we should resist and resist when we should submit. Paul famously expressed his frustration with remaining sin in the seventh chapter of uh, his letter to the Christians in Rome. And if you would, take your Bibles and turn there with me because this is a foundational passage 
that we need to have in our minds as we consider this, this radical, risky subject. Romans chapter 7, verse 14 Paul becomes very vulnerable and transparent here. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Again, he wasn't justifying his sin and saying, well, it's not really my fault. He was just acknowledging that, that I find this, this reality that there's sin that remains in my life. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but the, I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I say a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. And then the classic response. He says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is Jesus Christ through his life and his death and his resurrection that uh, the power of sin has been defeated and we have been delivered from the penalty of sin and one day we will be free from the very presence of sin when Christ returns or calls us home to be with him in heaven. So the penalty of sin has been dealt with. The power of sin has been dealt with. But it's this presence of sin that we have to continually deal with. And in this now and not yet phase or season of our lives, God, for his sovereign, his own sovereign purposes, has ordained that we be gradually and progressively and increasingly set apart from sin as we flee from it, as we fight to subdue it and mortify it in order to become more and more like Christ. That's what we refer to as the, the process of sanctification. And God designed the process of salvation, sanctification, excuse me, to work by degrees or in stages. In other words, it doesn't just happen all at once. We're, we're justified in a, in a moment of time. And we will be glorified in a moment of time. But this in-between stage, this sanctification stage, is a process. It works by degrees or in stages. And that's why Paul went on in Romans chapter 8 to explain how we're to put to death these sinful desires and, and, and habits that remain in us with eager anticipation of that glorious day when our sin-cursed bodies will be redeemed and we will be sinless forever. And then in that same chapter, in chapter 8, he reassures us 
that God causes all things to work together for good, including our remaining sin. And nothing can separate us from God's love for us in Christ. This is where Newton was coming from when he talks about the advantages of remaining sin. And he based his logic on the fact that God hates sin and loves us. And if we know these things are true, and they are, God hates sin and he loves us, then the fact that God didn't take us to heaven the moment we got saved, or at least didn't make us instantly perfect, which he could have if he wanted to, if it pleased him, but instead he left us here on earth to continue to struggle with sin our entire lives, then it must in some way bring him glory and accomplish good in our lives. And so the question is, how is God glorified and what good comes from our daily struggle with remaining sin? What advantages, what what benefits could there possibly be from what seems like this never-ending cycle of being tempted to sin and then sinning and confessing our sin and receiving forgiveness for our sin and repenting of our sin and enjoying a season of rest and, and, and victory over our sin and then just when we think we've conquered that sin once and for all, it comes raging back to life with greater strength and fury than ever before and we blow it again. Is there anything good about that? Is there anything beneficial or advantageous about that? John Piper in his latest tome on providence, in a section called Providence Over Christian Living, says this, quote, God knows that a lifetime of dealing with indwelling sin is a wise way for us to sense a true measure of our corruption and a truer measure of God's grace. Truer, that is, than if we were perfected five minutes after our conversion. Paul seems to point in this direction when he correlates the desperation we feel because of our ongoing sinfulness and the exaltation we feel because of the grace that comes to us from God through Christ. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Piper calls this a double response or sees in this a double response. He says this double response to the ongoing existence of sin is the path of the most fitting loathing of sin and treasuring of grace. And so the idea here is that in this wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, there's a loathing of sin. There's a hatred of sin. And then thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, there's a, there's a treasuring of Christ. There's a treasuring of his grace and his mercy. So those are really two of the most obvious advantages or or benefits of remaining sin, that we hate sin more and we value the gospel more. That was all for free. Before we attempt to answer this question more fully, I need to give a very important disclaimer 
um, it's almost like I need to go out to the, to the bowling alley and hit that button that brings up the bumpers so there's no way you can get a gutter ball, right? It's always going to go down and, and you're going to end up hitting the pins, right? I don't want anybody falling off into a gutter on either side today. And so I feel like this disclaimer is necessary because the word advantages or benefits are slippery words to use when talking about our sin. This is a very delicate subject that needs to be handled with great care. Newton could be likened to a skilled pharmacist who was carefully mixing poisons that could kill us to concoct a medicine or a vaccine that God can use to comfort us and give us hope. One of Newton's biographers, Tony Renke, said it this way, God ever abhors pride and self-importance and he is committed in mercy to pound them as in a mortar to beat it out of them or to prevent its growth and yet even within the battle to purge his children from all evil, evil plays a role. Even within the battle to purge his children from all evil, evil plays a role. For now, we in our flesh harbor sin, an enemy, a viper of lingering enmity against God that eludes our mortifying efforts. I say this because my concern is that if this tricky topic is miscommunicated by me or misconstrued by you, it could lead to incorrect conclusions which could, which could result in harmful consequences to your souls. In other words, it would hurt you rather than help you. Obviously, Newton was in no way advocating sin or advising us to sin so we can experience or enjoy the, the, the advantages and benefits of sin. And Paul's warning to the Romans applies here when he was expressing the magnitude of God's grace in Romans chapter 5. You're still there, I hope. You can just turn back to a page or two or look across the page. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned to death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, if you were to take that, Paul's uh, words at face value, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Well, the logical conclusion is I want, if I want to experience more of God's grace, I just need to sin more. Oh, this is a great deal. Not only do I get to enjoy my sin, I get to enjoy God's grace. And, and you and I both know there, there is a thinking in the church today like that. It's called the free grace movement. And it's like, hey, let's just, you know, it really doesn't matter uh, what you do um, because it's all under grace. And, and the bigger the sinner you are, uh, the more you can exalt and, and rejoice in, uh, in the grace of God. Um, well, how does Paul provide a corrective? In chapter 6, verse 1, he says, what shall we say then are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And what is his answer? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So we need to heed Paul's warning here. And these advantages or benefits 
or whatever you want to call them of remaining sin should never be viewed as an excuse for sinning. Sin is our mortal enemy. Sin killed our Savior, and it wants to kill us. And killing it is the daily work of the Spirit in our lives. Again, Paul Tripp and Do You Believe, he said this, quote, sin is a deceitful, malevolent, and seductive killer still lurking in the corners of your heart. Sin is always harmful, always destructive, and never good. Sin is never something that you should find a way to live with. Sin is never an acceptable occupant in the home that is your heart. Sin must be destroyed. It must be eradicated. It must be put to death. There is no acceptable plan B. The goal of God's sanctifying grace is the final death of the sin that remains in us. Amen? So we should never be comfortable with our sin or become complacent about our sin by simply telling ourselves it's okay to sin since God will use it for his good in the end. God works all things together for good, including my sin, and so I'm just going to go ahead and sin anyway and trust God that he's going to use it for my good. Now, Newton was a wise, careful shepherd and was not promoting any such faulty logic, but provided many exhortations for believers to remain vigilant in our fight against sin. But he was simply following in the footsteps of faithful Puritan pastors of the previous generation who, in the 1640s, had drafted the Westminster Confession of Faith, something that I know some of you are familiar, especially our good uh, Presbyterian friends here. Um, You're familiar with the Westminster Confession of Faith, which really laid the foundation for the Reformation in the Church of England back in the 1600s, 1700s. And it is a brilliant written, biblically-based doctrinal statement and is considered by many to be the best explanation of systematic theology ever framed by the Christian church. It contains 33 chapters, and the fifth chapter covers the subject of God's providence. And it clearly states that sin proceeds from the creature and not from God because God is holy and righteous and neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. And yet, in his almighty power and unsearchable wisdom and infinite goodness, he is able to use sin for his own holy ends. Which leads up to this statement that when I read for the first time, it brought me to tears. An old, yes, an old doctrinal statement from the 1600s brought me to tears because of its wisdom and warmth. And I want to quote for you the section, this is the Westminster Confession of Faith, section five, or, or, or chapter five, section five, again, in the in this section, it's all about providence. And I wanted to have Chris put this up here because I wanted you not just to hear it, I wanted you to see it like I did the first time, 30,000 feet in an airplane when I was reading this book. And I was like, whoa. And my heart was so encouraged and comforted. This is what they wrote. 
Quote, the most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled. And to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends. It's a profound statement, isn't it? I personally have never gone that far or that deep in my thinking about God's providence in regards to my sin. And it was so rich, it was so refreshing. And again, keep in mind here, the men who wrote this statement weren't just some cold, stuffy, analytical theologians who were merely focused on achieving doctrinal precision. They were pastors They were preachers who were focused on providing biblical counsel and comfort for the people that God had entrusted to their care, particularly in regards to how they should view their continual struggle with sin and temptation. And they wanted them to understand that sin does not fall outside the providential control of God, and there are times that that rather than leading us out of temptation, God leaves us in tempting situations and allows us to battle with sin and even fall into sin. And rather than delivering us from the evil one, he permits Satan to attack us. And this all serves his wise, gracious, righteous purposes for our lives. And so the Westminster Assembly, this was the group that drafted this confession, suggested five purposes here in this statement and gave biblical examples of each. And just just want to walk through this uh, with you. Uh, It's not up there anymore, but I'll just remind you of these. First, it may be to chastise us for our former sins. It, It may be to chastise us for our former sins. Former sins, namely those sins we've committed in the past that have not yet been fully dealt with. Again, chastise is not punish. There's a a difference between being punished and being disciplined. We will never be punished for our sins. Christ took the punishment for our sin on the cross. But we can still be disciplined for our sin. Proverbs 3 Verse 11, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves even as the father corrects the son in whom he delights. And the writer of Hebrews quoted those two verses and led into this. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with us as with sons, for what son is there from whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? 
For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And the writers of the Westminster Confession uh, added scripture references under each one of their statements to make sure that everyone knew where they were coming up with this, uh, that they weren't just like coming up with this stuff in their own heads, but this is grounded, rooted, based on the truth of Scripture. And so they included here 2 Samuel 24, which is a reference to the time when David was incited to number the people. And you know that one of the things that God said he never wanted the kings of Israel to do was to number the people because that would be a temptation to be dependent on their numbers. Look at how many people we got in our army. We're invincible because we have, you know, 800,000 soldiers. God didn't want them to know how many soldiers they had. He just wanted to go out and battle with even if it was 400 guys, right, and trust God. But it says, again, this is 2 Samuel 24, 1. Now, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. Now, this is a controversial passage. Bible scholars argue about, you know, did God incite him? We know that God doesn't tempt anyone. Um, in fact, uh, the, the cross-reference, I think it's in First Chronicles um, 21, actually says that Satan incited um, David to do this. I think that's a much clearer way of understanding this, that, that God in his anger against Israel and their waywardness, um, in a sense, gave them over, let Satan have his way, and, and tempted David, who tempted David to, to number the people. And uh, it goes on in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 10, David's heart was troubled after he numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And a prophet showed up and said, the Lord's going to give you three choices. You can choose whichever one you want. You shall have seven years of famine. You could flee from your enemies for three months, or you could have three days of plague. Now consider and see what answer I will return to him who sent me. And I love how David responded. I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of men. In other words, if we were, had a famine, we'd have to rely on other people. Uh, if we were running from our enemies, it would all be dependent on what our enemies did. But when it comes to pestilence, that's all in the hands of God. And so I'm gonna cast myself at the mercy of God. And we'll take, the, we'll take our punishment. We'll take our, our, our discipline, if you will. And then in verse 17, it says, And David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel was striking down the people. 70,000 people died. He says, It is I who have done wrong, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. David recognized that it was his sin. But ultimately, God said, no, it's not just you, David. It's all of y'all. <laughs> I'm, I'm upset with all y'all. 
And then it says in verse 25, David built an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Thus the Lord was moved by prayer for the land and the plague was held back from Israel. The other example that's cited in uh, the Westminster Confession is the story of Hezekiah. Uh, in Second Chronicles chapter 32, in Hezekiah, another king of Israel, um, actually Judah, king of Judah there, um, in Second Chronicles chapter 32, we see how God gave him a great victory over the Assyrian army who had besieged uh, Jerusalem, and, and, uh, and, and Hezekiah had prayed with Isaiah the prophet that God would deliver them, and an amazing miracle took place. An angel of the Lord came and destroyed the entire army, like thousands, you know, hundreds of thousands of soldiers, just, just killed them all. Woke up the next morning, they're all dead. And the king said, well, I guess I can't go any further, the king of Assyria. So he went back home and went into the temple and his own family members killed him. And so Hezekiah got a little bit too big for his britches after that. And many people were bringing gifts to the Lord at Jerusalem, choice presents Hezekiah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations thereafter. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill and he prayed to the Lord and the Lord spoke to him and gave him a sign but Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received because his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came upon him on Judah and Jerusalem. However, Hezekiah humbled the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come on them in the days of Hezekiah. Part of the problem was uh, he was so proud of all that the Lord had blessed him with that he did something else God told the kings never to do, is show off your wealth, show off my blessing. And so he brought in the, the, the people who had come to the rulers of Babylon, the envoys from Babylon who would come. And he kind of said, hey, check this out. And he showed them all the Israel's wealth, which was a stupid thing to do because guess who was the next nation that God used to punish or discipline Israel or Judah? It was the Babylonians. So these are examples of how God oftentimes uses sin to chastise us for our former sins. Psalm 119, I love this, verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and you do good. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. I love the emphasis on God's character. He's good, he's faithful, he's righteous to afflict me, right, so that I would learn to keep his word. Secondly, remaining sin may be to discover unto us the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of our hearts that we may be humbled. Jeremiah 79, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And we've looked at this passage many times already. Deuteronomy chapter eight, the nation of Israel. God says, you shall remember all the way, or Moses says this, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. Again, verses 15 and 16, he led you through the great and terrible wilderness with his fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of Lent. In the wilderness, he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and he might test you to do good for you in the end. And another New Testament example is that of Peter. 
You remember Peter and how cocky he was in Mark chapter 14, verse 29, when Jesus predicted that they would all fall away, all of his disciples fall away, and he says, man, if everyone else falls away, I will never fall away from you. And then, of course, you know what happened, right? He ended up denying that he even knew the Lord three times. And this was all to show him, reveal to him the deceitfulness of his own heart and to humble him. Thomas Watson, another Puritan pastor, wrote a little article called Indwelling Sin Pulls Down the Plumes of Remaining Pride. He said, man is a self-exalting creature and if he has but anything of worth, he is ready to be puffed up. But when he comes to see his deficiencies and failings and how far short he falls or comes of that holiness and that perfection which God requires, it pulls down the plumes of his pride and lays them in the dust. He weeps over his inability. He blushes over his leprous spots. He says with Job, I abhor myself in dust and ashes. And that's why Peter, it says, went out into the night and wept bitterly. He was humbled to the dust. Thirdly, it says it may be to raise us to a more close and constant dependence for our support upon himself. In other words, God may use remaining sin to raise us to a more close and constant dependence for our support upon himself. Again, the nation of Israel is a great example. God would send them into exile, and it was for the purpose of drawing their hearts back to him that they would recognize that they had strayed from him and he wanted them to come back to him in dependence and in prayer. And Paul is a good example of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You remember what uh, he says about this thorn in the flesh. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, this is 2 Corinthians 12, 7, I myself... To keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me, and he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I'll rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Thomas Boston another Puritan pastor. Again, you, if you read the Puritans, you start tripping over this concept of the advantages, the benefits of remaining sin. And he wrote uh, an article uh, or a, a, some kind of piece here. It's, it's called Why the Lord Suffereth Sin to Remain in the Regenerate. And he said, this gives the soul many errands to God, stirs him up to the frequent exercise of prayer and calling on the name of the Lord. The soul feels the continual need of pardon and therefore must needs be much lying at God's footstool. When they grow remiss in their duty, the Lord sometimes for their awakening suffers them to fall into some sin or sins grievously, wounding the conscience and so like a presumptuous self-willed child falling into the fire, they cry for and value the help of their father even more. Fourth, it may be to make us more watchful against all future occasions of sin. Fourth, it may be make us more watchful against all future occasions to sin. And again, Peter is referenced by the Westminster Assembly uh, as evidence of this statement when 
in John 21, Jesus restored Peter and he asked him, Simon, do you love me? He was a lot more humble in his response. In fact, he, 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 he wasn't as confident, self-confident as he was before. He says, Lord, you know I love you. And Christ asked him a second time. He's like, Lord, you know I love you. And a, and a third time. He wasn't about to put himself out there again and say, oh, man, I'm totally in love with you. I'm so committed to you. He didn't do that. He had learned his lesson. Again, Thomas Boston here, he says, we, walk amid, we live in a world where there are traps set before and behind it on each side to catch us. We walk amid many snares yet are ready to fall secure and careless and to let down our guard. It is not amiss then that sometimes we smart. In other words, we fall into sin in order to be kept awake. To be kept awake. To wake us up. Like, whoa. I got, I got lazy. I got apathetic. I'm, in, I'm at war here. And the fact that I just got attacked by Satan or my flesh, I, it was a good reminder, woke me up. And then lastly, he says, fifth, it may, they, they said, it may be for sundry other just and holy ends. That, that's kind of the, you know, covers it all there. It, it may be for uh, several other just and holy ends. We don't have time to look at it this morning, but I would commend to you uh, Psalm 73, the story of Asaph, um, where he battled with envy of the wicked and how he was bitter within and he struggled with, with why God was blessing you know, the, the, the wicked and he was going through all this suffering and temptation and trial and, and God was teaching him some things. God was reminding him that, that uh, of, the, of the end of the wicked and more importantly, he had something that they would never have and that was him. And brought him to the place where he said, whom have I in heaven but thee and on earth I desire nothing. God was using it to purge him of his love for the world and, and um, his envy of the wicked. Man, there's a whole other sermon here. I'm like halfway through. Let me just tease you a little bit, and maybe we'll come back to this. Um, just some other suggested advantages or benefits. It assures us that we're truly saved. Man, I really want to unpack that some more. It keeps us from becoming self-righteous and enables us to empathize with our fellow sinners. Um, it shows us how wicked and weak we really are and how desperately dependent we need to be on God. Uh, number four, it provides us with regular opportunities to appreciate and celebrate the power and preciousness of the gospel. Number five, it exposes how heinous sin is and makes us to hate it more. Uh, six, it exalts how glorious Christ is and endears us to him. And then lastly, it increases our longing for heaven where we will enjoy eternal rest from sin and we will never sin again. Lots and lots of great quotes from Puritans and the Valley of Vision and their men. All, they're all talking about it. I mentioned in the beginning, Newton is best known for amazing grace, right? But he also penned a more obscure 
but no less valuable hymn called, I Ask the Lord That I May Grow. And you've got a copy of it somewhere within arm's reach because Chris put it out there for you. And it's a profound song about how God afflicts us in order to grow and mature us in our relationship with him. And, and it's, and it's seven, seven stanzas. It's like the longest hymn in the world. But it, it makes you keep, like normally after two, two stanzas, I'm like, I'm, I'm out, I'm good, let's move on. Well, this one just makes you want to keep singing because I'm like, Where, where's this going? This is like, like drama in this hymn. I want to see how this concludes. And so Chris is going to come, and I asked him if he would just lead, it, lead us in this hymn. Um, again, this is John Newton. I asked the Lord that I may grow. Just why don't we stand, and, and you guys can read it off the screen, I guess. Is it on the screen? Yeah, or you can follow along on the hymn, hymnal sheet there for those of you that like this, like, like a hymn book, right? And then... Uh, I'll come back. I'll come back and close us. Sweet, well, because that's why I gave you the music sheet. So if I do it wrong, you can correct me. But uh, yeah, let's sing to the Lord and, and just explore this this beautiful hymn, which I think uh, is is a great capsule to this message this morning. I ask the Lord that I might. Some favor. 
Father, we're so humbled by this profound reality that you oftentimes seem to go out of your way to make our lives difficult, and that you are able in your wisdom and your power and your goodness and grace use painful internal struggles with sin and temptation to deliver us from selfishness and pride and break us from trying to find our joy in earthly things and so that we would find our happiness and satisfaction in you and you alone. And so, Lord, as we meditate upon these advantages, these benefits that we've talked about and maybe even explore more on this subject and go deeper into this subject, would you just guard us and protect us from misunderstanding this, misconstruing this, misapplying this in any way, Uh, but may this serve us so well to give us hope and comfort in our ongoing struggle with sin and make us just look forward to heaven so much more when we will be out of range of the devil and his fiery darts. We long for that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.